So our Advent reading had a key word in it. I hope that you heard it. I just did that. Hope, that's the word. It's a key word there, hope. In the Advent season, we're hoping, reflecting on, right? But we are, we are rejoicing in this great hope of a light that's going to break darkness wide open. A hope that means no more hiding. A hope that means we have this entry into the loving presence of God. But there are many of you, of us, I mean, all of us, perhaps, we struggle. We struggle to hold on to that hope. In fact, we will have moments where we shrink back. When our sin is exposed, when the things that we don't want people to see when the things that we don't want to see come out, we want to pull away. There's always a finger that's pointing at you. Do you have any of those fingers in your life? Right? Those fingers pointing at you and going, oh, look at you. Or, maybe this is even better, there is that person that you have to look at every day in the mirror. I venture to say that there are probably some, some days that you don't want to look at that person. Some days it's hard to look at that person that's looking back at you. Those things call our hope into question. We start to lose our confidence. We get this little voice that comes up and says, you're not fit to be here. Here, in God's presence, a little voice, this chatty way, you don't belong here. Does anybody ever think that? Does anybody ever have that thought, who do I think that I am, thinking that I can come before God. Satan's really good at that. He's good at undermining that confidence. He's good at attacking us where we're the weakest so that we choose to hide 
rather than hope. And rather than remain confident, we cower. That's this sort of struggle that we're going to have, especially in a season like this in Advent. Because we want to say, yay, there's this great hope. And, but, oh, who am I? Zechariah 3, it will empower us. Zechariah 3 is going to do something. It's going to strengthen us. Because what it says to us is that we can confidently withstand these attacks from Satan for a really good reason. It's because our God has made us fit for his presence. He has done it. Now, we get right into the thick of it in these first two verses, or first few verses. We'll walk through them. In verse 1, again, the prophet says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. You know where we are. We're in that divine assembly. Do you all remember that? Folks who've been here for a while, you remember the divine assembly, this sort of heavenly gathering where Yahweh, he is sort of at the, at the head of the table and he's got his messengers, his servants. They go, boom, go where he wants them to. That's what we're seeing. Joshua is the high priest. And this is what's cool is there's this, it's really unusual in prophetic books, right? Because now you have this mixture of like, here's this, here's this guy, Joshua, which everybody knows. They can see and touch him. And, but then it's kind of mixed together with this symbolic stuff that normally you can't see. So imagine this. What, what's happening right here? Joshua standing before the angel of Yahweh, the angel of the Lord. Satan accusing at his right hand. Guess what that is? That is what's going on in the invisible world, right? That's what's going on when the priest, the high priest, goes in to the presence of God. That's, that's the story that's unfolding. That's the action. It's even more interesting at this particular time. And you remember, remember this with Job, uh, with, uh, Job. This happened with Job, where the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan was among them. This is interesting, though. This is a little bit different. Here we've got Yahweh as judge, and Satan as the accuser, and the high priest who's doing his job, but something is wrong. We get to see the problem that the accusation is aiming at. Look at verse 3. Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. Now, 
make you a little bit uncomfortable. That, that's some pretty graphic imagery. You know what filth, you know what that filth is normally translated? Excrement. Dung. Since the people, he's the high priest. That's his, literally, right? He stands for the people. So this dung-smeared apparel doesn't just apply to him. This is about the people. And if he is profaned, not holy, and guess what that means? That there's no temple, no sacrifice, no worship, no presence of God. That's a problem. Everybody's going, I thought that's why we came back. And Satan's going, this isn't going to work. You can't do that. He has a point, right? This is what I love about this passage is the passage says his robe was smeared with excrement. No getting around that one. Satan's like, hmm, what you going to do with this? God. How can they be in your presence? How can you be in his presence? See, because they're just a picture of all of humanity. They're not alone. This is all of us. He is pointing the finger at you saying, how can you be here? At the same time, he's accusing Joshua and he's accusing you. He's also accusing God, right? How can you let them be here? What are you going to say? Of course, Satan, he's sort of dealing in half-truths here. You know what he's working with? He's working with something that extends all the way back to the fall, right? Right, this is... This is, this is really nice, isn't it? This is really sweet for him. So Satan sort of works this deal. He sort of sets up this thing that he can now bring up and throw it back in God's face, right? Because he deceived Adam and Eve. Right? And he's banking on this in Genesis 3, 22. Then the Lord God said, Behold... The man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man at the east of the garden of Eden and he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way into the tree of life. Satan is saying... Ha! What about that? 
You can't let them back in. Not without a little tussle with a, an angel with a flaming sword. I don't want to have anything to do with that. So how does the Lord respond in the face of Satan's attacks? What do, what do we have? Right? You know, Joshua didn't say anything. He didn't say anything. You know why? Because he can't. He smells himself. It's on his clothes. It's on his hands. It's everywhere. He has nothing to say. You don't either. If this is it. But here's what God does. This is the first thing that Zechariah gives to you. Here's the first little gift Zechariah hands you. He hands you this truth and he says, you know what? In the face of these attacks, you know what I can show you? Is that your God, your Lord, defended you. Look at two. The first part of two. Chapter three, verse two. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. Now, don't, don't miss this, right? This is not just him saying, you hush it. Shut it. Close it, mister. That's not what that is. That's not, it's not even a forceful, shut up. Right? Sorry if that's a bad word in your house. I mean. It's not what that rebuke is. I'm going to give you an example of this rebuke. It's, it, this one is in Isaiah 17. Listen to this. The nations roar like roaring many wa- like the roaring of many waters. Right? Scary, right? The nations. The nations quite often are sort of symbolized by these seas. Right? Look at us. We're big bad nations. Yeah. I know. It's obviously not scary, right? (laughs) He's silly, Mom. Here's what God says. Listen to this. But he will rebuke them. And you know what happens? They flee far away. It's like God speaks and the... Gone. It goes on. Chased like chafe on the mountains before the wind... And the whirling dust before the storm. That is rebuke. That is why you don't hear from Satan again. In this passage. He rebukes them. But. We still have to ask. On what basis. Does he do this? You don't have to turn here. I just want you to listen to this. This is Romans 3. I think this is one of these great passages. To go along with the, like Hebrews, the inadequacy 
if the Levitical priesthood, if the old law was good enough, then it wouldn't have had to have changed. Here's the way Paul puts it. Speaking of, of, well, I'll just, the coming of Christ. In 2022, he says, For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. And then this part. Listen really close to this. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. That's why the author of Hebrews says, the blood of bulls and goats don't cleanse a conscience. And there's a, that's, that's a technical phrase, right? Be basically saying, hey, it doesn't handle what's going on that you can't see that invisible stain that you can't wash off. God could only allow these folks into his presence by these symbols based on what he would do. Here's what Satan didn't consider. So, or he left out. Remember, he's a half-truth kind of guy. What Satan didn't include was Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Satan left out that part because that part is a promise that this departure from my presence is not permanent. It won't last. I'm going to deal with it. Nor did Satan account for this part, something that was coming. I love this. Listen to this. So we've already read Zechariah 3, 1 through 10. Zechariah, high priest, right there, presence of Yahweh, angel of Yahweh, Satan accusing. Listen to this. Don't turn there, just listen to this. Revelation 12. And a great sign, this is 1 through 10, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and, with his, uh, and on his heads were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars in the heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. Now, all that sounds weird, right? 
You've got dragon, you know, knocking down the stars. It becomes clear with this. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But Satan, the red dragon, he's there ready to try to gobble him up. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has has a place prepared by God in which she is nourished for 1260 days. Dragon waiting for this birth. You think Advent is this sweet time where we get to have little baby Jesus come? It's not. It's war. It's writhing. At the coming of Christ, the cosmos goes crazy. There is violence and convulsion. This is a right, that's why it's birth pains. You know what was going on? You know what happens right here? Almost parallel to this, right? The baby, the baby's caught up into the throne room. What's that all? Here it is. The next verse, now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, who was thrown down to the earth, and his angels thrown down with him. And then this, I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. That baby that's caught up to heaven, that child, his Christ in his life and his death and his resurrection. And when he's caught up, it's over for Satan. This is the rest of this. The authority of his Christ, of of his Christ have come for, ready for this? The accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. He has nothing to stand on. I mean, that's not going to stop him from accusing. But there is no grounds because it is finished. And then Satan excluded this part. This is at the end of Our passage here, Zechariah 3, verse 6. So we we looked at verses 1 through 3, and now we jump down to verse 6. Listen to this. 
the angel of the Lord solemnly assured Joshua, Thus says the Lord of hosts, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house and have charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those who are standing here. Right? Those who are standing here. Remember, this is the heavenly courtroom. He's saying, I, in a word, I will give you heaven. Joshua. But then there's this last part. He says, Here now, O Joshua, the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you, for they are men who are assigned. And that, that they includes Joshua. The high priest, the priest, Satan did account for this. They are assigned. They are a portent to something else that's coming that actually relates to this whole thing of you know, doing what God says and guarding the courts and getting access to those who are standing here. They are a sign, and then the last part of eight, behold, I bring my servant the branch. Satan, in all of his rebuking, in his accusations, right? he didn't, he left out you know, a little bit of the truth back at the beginning. He didn't account for what's coming way out in the future, and he didn't account for the promise of that now, these guys, these priests, they're a sign. We know that, right? Because, I want to read this again. If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, then you shall rule my house in the charge of my courts, and I will give you the right of access among those standing here. What happened to the priesthood after Joshua? Did it stay at stellar 10? Those guys, they were, we got this promise from God and we're going with it, marching in. No. They're a sign of the one who does this. The one we celebrate, the one who's coming we celebrate, the one who lived obediently to his father. And that obedience was an obedience of suffering and death. And he was raised there. You got a little bit more left in you? Okay, yes, no, maybe so. Because uh, now it's just like it's all, I'm going to start shoving stuff in your face now. It's going to be like a gorge fest, right? Because we got this out of the way. We know how he can do this. We know how God can defend him. Now we get to see what's between verses 1 through 3 and verses 6 through 8. You know, 
this chasm. Now we get to see why all that stuff makes any sense at all. Right? Here's the other thing that Zechariah can tell you. You want to you you withstand the attacks of Satan? Zechariah says, here's the other thing that I give you. Your Lord claimed you. The second part of verse 2. He says, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? The Lord bases his rebuke on his choosing and his power to save you. What he said right there, he said, you are mine. He said, you belong to me. That's what choosing Jerusalem is all about, right? It's a place where God's people dwell with God and worship him under his rule, flourishing, right? That's the picture. That's you. This goes all the way back to Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 7, it says this, It's not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you or chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping oath that he swore to your fathers. It's because of that that he brought us he has brought you out of the mighty hand and I mean, yeah, of a, of, with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And you know this, right? That all of these nations, where do you see this? All of these nations, these kings, guess who's behind all that? Guess who the major power is? Satan. Right? The principalities and the powers, Paul says that. And Jesus has dealt with them. It's not because you smell good that he chose you. It's not because you look good. It's not because you act good. It's because he loved you. And this doesn't just extend to Deuteronomy. This goes even further back. Ephesians 1. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to his pur- the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. That is why he plucked you out of the fire. That fire, the fire is like sort of the furnace. Again, there's symbolism, right? This furnace of the nations where everybody was cooking and God reached in and grabbed them out. That's you. A stick pulled out of this fire. Not because you're a great stick. Or because you have a great God. The Lord says, I've taken you to myself. 
I've taken you into my love with a faithful love. That's what he says to you. The other thing Zechariah gives you is that the Lord cleaned you. Listen to this. This is 4. Chapter 3, verse 4. The angel of the Lord, I mean, the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. There's no rhetorical flourish needed here. It's right there in the text. You notice that he says to the attendants, Take off his garments. And then he says to Joshua directly, I have removed your iniquity from you. That's what your Lord says to you. That's the big announcement when we gather here. I have taken your sin from you. Psalm 103 says it like this. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And then this, as a father shows compassion on his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. That's what he says to you. I saw you in this, this muck, this suffering, and I've taken it from you. How can he do this? How is God able to do this? This is why, this is why you need a baby in that manger. This is it right here. Here's why you need a baby in that manger. Hebrews 2, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has power of the power of death, that is, the devil. So this is what Jesus, Christ, that baby, you need him because what that baby did is he put on the dung-stained robes. He didn't have any of it. It's yours. He put it on. All over his hands. Nails. Hair. Not a real, there's no elegant way to put on a dung-stained robe. He put it on, that he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. 
For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help you who are tempted. He is able to help you. And that little voice creeps up. Who do you think you are? Why are you here? You are dirty. The last thing, well, almost, that Zechariah gives us is that your Lord clothed you. Right? He took that away, and then he does this. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a turban on his head and clothed him with garments. The Lord exchanges the dumb smeared robes for rich apparel. Right? We're back in business. We got us some festival clothes, which is, we got a priest that's properly clothed now, right? A priest that can serve, that can do what he was called to do. They can go into the presence of Yahweh. This has happened to you. Paul says in Colossians, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. What is the big deal about being raised with Christ? Well, first of all, we get in on that promise, remember? I will give you access among those here. Jesus, that was his. He gave it to us. This is what Paul finishes with. Seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. That's not your renewal of your personal, your personal best. The old man is you in the furnace, in Adam. The new man is you Verse 11 says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Whatever you tell yourself when you look in the mirror, this is what Zechariah this is what Paul says. You are Christ's. That is who you are. You are in him. That's you. Lastly, and I mean it the son, the last thing is that the Lord covers you. 5C, it says, and the Lord, angel of the Lord was standing by. Don't let that slip by you. The angel, everybody's standing, right? Everybody, you know, Satan's standing. Joshua's standing. The angels, the they're all standing right there in the, you know. But now we see the angel standing. That's, everybody is sort of has their place in this judicial process. There's the angel standing 
for Joshua. He has made his pronouncement. He has determined his status before him. And now he stands as your advocate. He doesn't stop doing it. I'll end with this. Can't say it any better than this. Paul. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Defending us, claiming us, cleaning us, clothing us, covering How will he not graciously give us everything? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for you. He's there. There. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Or distress? Or persecution? Or famine? Or nakedness? Or danger? Or sword? That's everything. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors. Not because we smell good, not because we look good, not because we act right. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation, I think that about covers it. Nothing. 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 Is able to separate us from the love of God. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. That's who invites us to the table today. Wait, am I supposed to do that now? I forget, okay. The one who defended you, the one who claimed you, the one who cleaned you, the one who clothed you, the one who covers you, that's the one that says, come here to me and eat with me. In our eating and in our drinking, he says, you are mine. 
and all that I have promised is yours. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, For I have received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup, oh, excuse me, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You proclaim the kingdom breaking in. You proclaim the end of the vocation of the accuser. Let's distribute the elements.